Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody today? Wonderful. Good. I'm glad you're here. Uh, bring greetings from First Baptist Belton. As Colton said, my name is Jason Gish. I'm the missions pastor from First Baptist Belton. And Colton gave an over-the-top um, greeting for me. I'm not a good disc golf player. I do enjoy playing disc golf. And if that's what he said about my disc golf, I'm not certain about my shepherding either. But... Um, <laughs> Colton, thank you so much. Uh, church elders, thank you for allowing me to come and, and to preach and bring God's word to you. As you know, you have been in a series on the book of Daniel, and this is the last sermon in, the, in, in this sermon series. Some of you are saying hallelujah. Some of you uh, love the book and love this type of study, and you wish uh, you could get more of this. And either way, that's, that's fine. Uh, you are... Uh, if you are a believer, you, you can study all you want in, in things like the book of Daniel and Revelation, Ecclesiastes and Matthew and, and Thessalonians and, and other scriptures that pertain to this, this type of material that you've been covering. Um, today's sermon is the final vision in the book of Daniel. It's uh, Daniel chapter 11. You can turn your Bible there if you'd like. Daniel chapter 11 is where we will be. Uh, you know, there's different kinds of, of prophecies in the Old Testament uh, these prophecies uh, always look forward. Uh, sometimes they're very historical prophecies with, with an immediate or very near future fulfillment of that prophecy. And sometimes uh, the fulfillment comes in the future. You know this already. You know that a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament, are, they are historical, but then they're also, uh, maybe they're Christological or they're Messianic. You know, a lot of the Psalms in Isaiah 53 and others, these prophecies that, that look forward to fulfillment in Christ. You have a lot of that. Uh, you also have some ecclesiological prophecies, some prophecies about the church or the body of Christ or the bride of Christ. And these prophecies are given uh, in the Old Testament and then they're fulfilled in the current age in, in the church, in the body of Christ. And then there's a lot of prophecies that are eschatological, big word for meaning the last days or the end of days. Uh, and... and so we see that these, these prophecies in the Old Testament are, are eschatological in nature, and, and perhaps they had some type of fulfillment in history, but then they look toward the future, to a future day that's coming that will be the, the final reign of God, the end of days. And that's the, the sermon title today is The End of Days. Um, and again, we'll be in, in Daniel chapter 11. I don't know about you, I'm not one that really... This is, I'm, should I, I'm not really all that into eschatology. That's just me personally. Uh, in terms of studying the end of days, uh, and, and you may be somebody who you understand all the terminology. You're a premillennial, you're a premillennial dispensationalist. You are, uh, you are premillennial, pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, maybe you're a post-millennial eschatology scholar, or maybe you're an all-millennial eschatological scholar, fantastic. Whatever you are, uh, have your conviction, study the scriptures, get your conviction. Uh, I will tell you, doesn't matter. I ask that question, doesn't matter. When, when, the, when the not yet becomes now, because we live in a now but not yet world. The kingdom of God is now, but it is not yet also. When, when the not yet becomes now, I'm going to tell you what. If you're somebody who holds to something like an eschatological view, one of these 
pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-millennial, post-millennial, all-millennial, whatever, if you are right, I will petition Jesus and we'll find you a gold star and we'll give you that gold star and say, you did good, you right, you're one of the few that got the scriptures totally right when it comes to the end days. Because I will tell you, whether you are a pre, a post, or an all-millennial, you can support your view scripturally. You just can. It's there. And that's why we have these, all these different scholarly views. And, and Daniel 11 and the things you've studied have just contributed to all of these types of things. So in, in Daniel chapter 11, where we're going to be, I, I, love, I love the way this vision starts out in Daniel chapter 11. In, cha- in verse 2, it just says, and now I will show you the truth. And then God lays out the vision for Daniel. I'm just going to kind of story the first part of chapter 11. So in chapter 11, there were these um, four kings. There were four kings of Persia with the fourth king being the most wealthy. He's growing and he's getting stronger in his wealth. And he wages war against Greece. But in Greece, however, there is a mighty king that arises to rule, and he ends up conquering the kings of Persia and conquering a great part of the world. And this king does as he pleases. But we know from Daniel chapter 11 that this kingdom will not last forever. And then for the remainder of the chapter 11, we see these wars being waged between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And the battle just goes back and forth between the, the, these these. These kings, there's a series of kings in the north and a series of kings in the south. So there's the, the king of the north, the king of the south. And eventually here in chapter 11, they make an agreement. There's an alliance formed. This alliance is, is codified or ratified by the king of the south, giving up his daughter in marriage to the king of the north. But that alliance doesn't last. And then one of the sons of the daughter given to the king of the north, he will rise up. He will overthrow the king of the north. He will invade the fortresses that are in the north, and he will carry off the bounty back to the king of the south, back to Egypt. There's a small time of peace in verse 8 and 9, but a small time of peace that's, that, that has a few small skirmishes between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. Eventually, the battles grow bigger and bigger. The wars grow bigger and bigger, and both kingdoms raise armies larger and larger, and the battles become more and more fierce. And eventually, the king of the north takes a stronghold in the south. The armies of the south are defeated. Even the best troops that the kings of the south have to offer are defeated. The terms are set and the battle ceases, but this does not bring an end to the battle. See, the king of the north, he will begin to travel along the northern coast of Africa. And then there's insurrection within his own ranks. And instead of continuing to conquer and expand his lands, he has to return home. And on his way home to take care of the insurrection, there is an additional insurrection that offs him and he's no longer in power. He's no longer alive. So another king of the north arises, and he continues to suppress the south. The south doesn't like this new king exacting taxes on them, and they they rise up and, and to begin to battle. After a while, they're at the bargaining table, and the king of the south and the king of the north come to some sort of truce 
between both of them, and it benefits both of them at the expense of their people. Both kings are evil. The, the king of the north returns home with great personal wealth and without regard for anyone or anything else other than himself. Eventually, the kings of the north become unsettled and they resume their attacks on the south. That's a lot in Daniel 11 of just the back and forth between the kings of the north and the kings of the the south. Mark, Mark chapter 13, verses 5 through 8, say this. Jesus began to say to them, this is when This is when the disciples asked, when will these things be? When will the end of days be? And Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. I'm not an alarmist, but you know what has been happening this past week. I would like for us as a church, and even though I'm not a part of Renewal Church, we are of the church, and I would like for us as a church... Could we, take, could we take a few minutes just to pray for Ukraine together? And the way we'll do that is uh, this is a small enough room that if you would like to pray out loud, if you feel compelled by the Spirit to pray out loud, then just sit or stand wherever you are and pray, and then just in a couple of minutes I will, I will close this in prayer. So let's, let's take a moment. As we understand and learn of wars and rumors of wars, and we, we see these events unfolding in Ukraine, and, and you've, you've heard the stories, you've been watching the news, many of you, You've seen inspiring videos. You've seen frustrating videos. You know the plight of the people. You know the hurt that they have. You know the betrayal they are facing. Um, Let's let's just take a moment to, to pray for Ukraine. Lord, I I lift up to you. The, the believers in countries like Poland and Hungary and Romania and Moldova who are receiving these refugees. Um, Lord, I know these governments are doing what they can, but I also have heard so many stories of the church rising up and being the church for these refugees. Lord, I pray that they would represent you so well that the love of Jesus would be shown so fiercely that in spite of this war, despite any plans for evil, that you would show yourself true, that many, thousands if not tens of thousands, if not more, would come to faith in you as they see your love in action. So God, uh, we, we lift up Ukraine. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. What I want to do for the rest of this uh, chapter is I'm going to be 
relating some passages in Daniel with the New Testament. And we're going to be springing back and forth rather quickly. You're going to find that this sermon is not a sermon that has a point one, a point two, a point three, a point four, but it's going to be more of a meandering through the scriptures together. So, so what I want us to do right now is we're going to read Daniel chapter 11, verses 29 to 32, and then we're going to read Mark 13, 14, and 13, 22. So let's read together Daniel 11, 29 through 32. At the appointed time, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and, shall, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall return back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And I want to go to Mark, Mark chapter 13. This is Mark 13, 14. This is Jesus continuing to answer the question from the disciples. He says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee into the mountains. And then over in, in verse 22, it says, For False Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. In these, in these verses, we can see in particular the connection between the Old and New Testament when we see that phrase, the abomination of desolation, or the abomination that causes desolation. And I know that we've had a sermon that dealt just briefly with this abomination, and I suspect that maybe some of you have talked about this in your home groups. Uh, that is to say, that, you know, the, the abomination that causes desolation, you know, it had a historical, uh, historical fulfillment in Antiochus IV when he, uh, when he did institute sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. Antiochus IV, the, the sacrifices, instead of being offered to Yahweh, they were being offered to Zeus. This also had another, another uh, fulfillment in AD 70, when the temple was destroyed by the Roman occupation just shortly after or at the beginning of the earliest church. But it will also have some form of eschatological interpretation or, or reality. We don't really have any idea what that's going to look like. It may be associated with the temple, but what we do know is that it will be a great sin that causes devastation. And what we do know about this is that some people will be deceived. Those who are not of the covenant, those who have a view or have a look or appear to be a part of the covenant but are not, will be deceived. But we also know that, I love what verse 32 said. It says, those, those who know their God, those who know their God will stand firm and take Action. We're going to circle back around to what that means to stand firm and take action a little later in the sermon. But 
Would you say that you are characterized as a person? I'll just ask the question right now and let it lay there. Are you characterized as a person who stands firm and takes action? Those who know their God will do so. I want to uh, give another connection to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. This is Daniel 12, verse 1, and Mark 13, 19. Daniel chapter 12, 1, and Mark 13, 19. This is what Daniel 12, 1 says. It says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. There shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Mark 13, 19. Mark 13, 19 says, says this. For in those days there will be, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. So, if you haven't caught on, we're looking at the parallels between Daniel, the vision that God gives Daniel, and the words of Jesus spoken in Mark 13, and then in the revelation given to John in Revelation, the vision given to John in Revelation. So, this time of tribulation, this time that time of trouble has never has been seen, this tribulation that will occur at that time, all we know is that, that there will be atrocities toward Christians that will be greater than anything experienced in the past or even till now. And as you've read stories, you know Voices of the Martyr, you've read the stories of the horrific actions taken against Christians around the world, and there's some horrible atrocities that do and have taken place. We do know that at the end of days, there will be some form of tribulation, some form of atrocities that are even worse than anything that is happening today. But how do you and I relate to that? Do you and I face trials and tribulations today? Because what I don't want to do is we don't want to take, and take a look at the worst of the types of tribulations, the, the beatings, the, the beheadings, the, the killing, the, the torturing, the, the, those types of of tribulations and trials that we do know take place, we don't want to maximize those and say, well, gee, what, what I experience is nothing. Because we, we do experience hearts, hurts and, and things that, that cause us trials and tribulations. Do you experience, have you ever experienced alienation because of your faith? Have you ever, ever experienced isolation because of your faith? Have you ever been reprimanded at work because of your faith? Have you ever been threatened to be fired from work because of your faith? Have you ever actually been fired because of your faith? We, we do face trials. We do face tribulations. And, and how do we stand, stand in the face of those Again, I go back to verse 32 in chapter 11. Those who know their God stand firm and take action. Another connection, Daniel 11.45 and Revelation 27 through 10. Daniel 11.45 
So the king of the north, he has been, he's been battling. He's come to the south. He's, he's battled, and now he's, he's got to return home because of troubles again. And it says, and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. This is a prophecy looking toward the end times, and let's see how it is fulfilled. Let's look at Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. Let's read this together. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather for them battle. Their numbers is like the sand of the sea, and they march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever." What we do know about our accuser, what we do know about the one who torments us, what we do know about the one who tempts us, is that there will be a day when he comes to his end and there will be none to help him. The devil will be thrown into the lake of fire for eternal torment. So isn't it good to know that no matter our fate, we know the fate of the one who deceives us, who tempts us, who accuses us. We know his fate. Another connection is Daniel 12, 1 through 2. Daniel 12, 1 through 2. And Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Let's read this again. At, the, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, at that time, we're finally at the end. At that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And then in Revelation, we see how this comes to be in Revelation 20. Then, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. One of these days we'll get to see that too. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There will be books, whatever that means. At the end of days, at the last days, there will be books. And these books will contain the judgment of men and women, all of us. And we, all of us, will be judged. We will be judged according to what we have done. Let's get out of our minds, and you know this to be true. The world doesn't understand this. There's this misnomer in the world that there's some grand scale in heaven that will weigh these judgments. And our good judgments will be put on one side, and our bad judgments will be put on the other side. And if our good judgments outweigh our bad judgments, then we will be able to enter into some type of heaven that is forever and be in glory, floating on a cloud with the angels. There is truth that there are books by which men will be judged. Our actions will be written in these books. What we have done, what we haven't done. The good we have done, the bad we have done. When we will stand in judgment of those things. But, but, there is another book. You know this book. It's called the book of life. And if your name is in it, if your name is in that book, book, you will enter into everlasting life. I'm not saying anything you don't already know. It's just in the text. I love the way we see Daniel prophesy this in his vision and then it come to fruition in Revelation. The reality is, even in this room, with the people that we cross every day, whether we're in a restaurant, the table next to us, in a grocery aisle, with people all around us, in our school, in our classrooms, in our workplaces, everywhere we go, some of those people will enter into everlasting life. Everyone else will not. That's the reality. We see it here in Daniel 11. 12, we see it in Matthew, and Mark, we see it here in Revelation. So I have some questions. Where are your eyes? Acts chapter 11 says this, Jesus had gone up into heaven and the disciples were standing there and the angel appears and he says, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Where are your eyes? Are your eyes looking at heaven? Are your eyes looking at heaven, at heaven and you're just simply returning and yearning for the return of Jesus? which isn't a bad thing, but your eyes continually and so focused up into heaven that an angel may have to come to you and say, why are you looking up? Look around. Look around. The people around you who don't know Jesus, when this Jesus comes back, when this Jesus comes back, if you're not looking around to preach and to proclaim to those the gospel who, who need to hear it, those people 
will experience the everlasting torment. So let's not get so caught up in looking up that we don't look around. I love this passage in 1 Peter 4, 12-19. Thank you for indulging me here. 1 Peter 4, verses 12-19. through 19. Beloved, I love that word, beloved. Beloved. Sometimes it's, your, your translation may say friends, my friends. Sometimes when that word is used in the New Testament, beloved, it is just a, like a term of endearment. Hey, friend. But sometimes when a writer uses it and he says beloved, it's a reminder that you're beloved by God. You are a beloved people. And God loves you. Hey, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do you share in Christ's sufferings? Because Christ was betrayed. Christ was forsaken. Christ was beaten and mocked and ridiculed. He was falsely accused. He was whipped and he was murdered. Do you share in the sufferings of Christ? To some extent, I would say if, if we are believers, all of us do in some form or fashion. But I love again, back to Daniel eleven thirty two. 32. The people who know their God will stand firm and take action. What does it mean to stand firm? You stand firm in your convictions. You stand firm in your belief. You stand against the tide of cultural relativism. You stand firm. It's the idea that a wave is coming against you. A tide is coming against you. Yet you plant your feet and you stand firm in your faith. People who know their God will do so. You stand firm. What does it mean to take action? What does it mean to take action? What is Christian action? Christian action is to love. Christian action is to pray. Christian action is to proclaim the gospel. Christian action is to disciple those in the faith. These are Christian actions. Let's be careful not to equate our civic duty with Christian action action. Our civic duty is important. Our civic duty, our, our vote, our stand against 
politicians whom we disagree with, our stand against those things. These things are important. These are civic duties. But please do not mistake your civic duty as taking action. Because taking action is love. It is prayer. It is proclamation of the gospel. It's the discipleship of, of fellow believers. And if your civic duty is not couched in love, bathed in prayer, attached to the proclamation of the gospel, you might want to shift your civic focus. But it's a good thing. I'm not disparaging civic action and, and being, wanting to be political and having a voice in the political realm, but just don't mistake it for what good Christians do. It's not the only thing. There's more. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay, I think I've beaten that horse enough. All right, so stand firm and take action. I'm just going to reread verse 19 of, of this chapter. Therefore, let those who suffer, suffer according to God's will. I mean, did you hear that? So it is God's will that we suffer. Those who suffer according to God's will, let those people entrust, give over, give over their souls. Give over your soul, your being, every bit of who you are. Give it over to a faithful, a faithful, one who doesn't forsake, a faithful creator, the one who made you, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb the one who knew you before the foundation of time, that guy, God, entrust your soul to him while doing good. The last verse I have to share is this, Revelation 22. Revelation 22, at the end of days, 22 verse 17, says this. It says, the spirit and the bride... For me, I'm taking this as God and the church. The Spirit and the church. God and the church. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Church, Renewal Church, let's be a people that stand alongside God, that stand firm and take action and be a people that say to the world, come, 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 come to Jesus, come to him. He is the answer. He is the savior. He is the creator. He is faithful. Come. Who do you know that you need to say that to? The last time I was here, I don't remember how many weeks ago, I preached a sermon that talked about sharing your testimony and asked the question, who's that one person? Every time you hear a sermon about sharing the gospel, who's that one person? Who are those people or that one person that God always brings to mind? They bring an image, God brings an image, he brings a name to your heart that says, you know what? You should reach out to him, have coffee with him, go grab lunch, spend some time with them, share your testimony, bring them a little closer to God, share some scripture with them, offer to pray for them. Who is that one person that God always brings to your mind. 
Who do you need to say, come to today? There could be somebody in this room that you are the one that that's being said to. God is saying, come. I want to know you. Matthew chapter 7 says something like, Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord. Jesus says, you can't come into my kingdom. And the people say, but, but we, we prophesied in your name. We taught in your name. We, we did all these things in your name. And then Jesus says, but you must depart from me because I never knew you. You get your name written in the book of life by knowing Jesus. That is the will of God for you, is to know Jesus.